Praise God. <clears throat> well, praise the Lord, for real. That was powerful, Marius. Thank you for writing and sharing your testimony. Uh, it's not just uh, your story, uh, but it is God's story, and it's also the story of this community. So thank you for inviting us to join you in this joy. And I could just feel the momentum. Can you feel that momentum in his life right now? Yeah. Just, Mar- Marius is moving. And hallelujah, we're, we're moving with him. Praise God, what a powerful testimony. Yeah. Uh, today, I just want to welcome, uh, we're going to be streaming our, the sermon today to all of our campuses again, because last week was actually part one of my sermon and today is part two. So it's just a two-part sermon. And I wanted uh, everyone at all the campuses to get it. So if you didn't get to hear last week's sermon, I encourage you to go back onto our podcast or onto our YouTube channel. And you can listen or watch the sermon. It's called You Are Significant. And last week I talked about how Dr. Larry Crabb, a Christian psychologist, he said that the basic personal need of each personal being is to regard himself as a worthwhile human being. As a worthwhile human being. And Dr. Kraft talked about how there's two elements that contribute toward giving us a sense of worth, a sense of dignity. And the first is significance, and the second is security. Last week, I talked about significance. I talked about how you are significant. Your life does not consist of a random collision of coincidences and events. But because you are in Christ, God has a plan and purpose for your life. Everything you do has meaning. Everything God leads you to do is connected to a bigger sovereign purpose. And I talked about how some people, they deal with this feeling of emptiness When they don't feel significance, they deal with that emptiness by focusing on short-term goals and experiencing a temporary sense of significance. But if you want your life to take on meaning, you got to begin by living for His glory. If you don't live for His glory, your life is forever doomed to a life of meaninglessness. Your life only has significance as you take part In the narrative of God. In the narrative of Jesus Christ. And I talked about also how, although it's popular in Christianity to say how unworthy we are. How worthless we are as sinners. We must clarify that this is what we used to be when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. But Christ has now clothed us in worth and in dignity. He declares us to be his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. It is not accurate for you to just stay in that mantra of, I'm unworthy and I'm worthless. That's where you began, but that's where you're not at right now. Because of Christ, he clothes you with worth and dignity. Some things are love because they are worthy. And other things are worthy because they are loved. You have worth 
You have value. You have significance. Because God has set his love upon you. The Bible says he has predestined us in love to be adopted as his sons. Before the creation of the world, before you did anything good or bad, he set his love upon you. And because he has done that, you are a person of great worth. And you are called to live a life of great significance. Amen? And I I also ended the sermon by talking about don't try to be somebody else. Don't covet someone else's life. Live your life. Be yourself. You know, no one's going to like you if you are trying to be someone else. People will like you when you learn to be yourself. Accept yourself for who you are and how God has made you. Because the way God's made you is connected to what he wants you to do with your life. And I also ended the sermon by saying that whatever God calls you to do, he also equips you to do it adequately. He does not set up his sons and daughters for failure. Just like when he called Moses, he promised Moses that he will be with him, that he will enable and equip him so that he can be successful. And I found a a verse in the Bible, Hebrews 13, 20. I think it just beautifully summarizes that last point. I just want to read it to you. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, Hebrews 13, 21, listen to this. May this Jesus equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This Jesus who redeems you, who forgives you, who cleanses you, Is also the Jesus who equips you with everything good that you may do his will. So last week I talked about significance. Your life has meaning and purpose. Today I want to talk about the second part. The second element that contributes to our sense of worth. And that is called security. Everyone say security. Now, I'm going to continue to present to you some of the things that I found in Dr. Larry Crabb's book. The book is called Basic Principles of Biblical Counseling. Very easy read, very tiny, short, little, thin book. Uh, Dr. Crabb has a Ph.D. in clinical psychology, and he was doing secular uh, clinical psychology before God called him to begin to do research for the church. Now, for people to have a deep sense of worth... People need not only significance, but they also need security. What do I mean by that? People have a need built into them, and it is a need for security, the security of being loved. If you do not have a security, if you don't have this need For security being fulfilled, you're most likely going to have mental health issues. Fear, anxiety, those types of things are going to go out of control. The first things, the significance says, I need to know that my life counts. That it has meaning, that it has a purpose. The second element says, I need to know that I'm loved. 
I need to know that I'm loved. I'm loved by someone. I'm accepted. I'm valued that I'm cherished and treasured by someone. That is what I'm talking about when Dr. Larry Crabb here says security. People who are starved of love often do one of two things to meet their need for security. Some people put their worst foot forward. And others put their best foot forward. So let me explain. Some people, when you show them any kind of interest, any kind of affection or love, they are straight up mean to you. Ever meet people like that? They're like, what's wrong with them? I'm like, I'm just trying to show some care and concern. And they just straight up mean. They might actually be a little nice. And then when you get too close, they push you away. I know. When I did college ministry, I met students like this. Doing new Philly ministry, I met people like this. You know, when it's all shallow and on the surface, oh, yeah, give a hug to the pastor. Oh, yeah, pastor, very encouraging. Oh, yeah. But you st- they start opening up their li- about their life or you start asking. You start probing about their life. And they just like, I don't want to talk to you. I don't even know. I don't know if I want to keep coming to this church anymore. <laughs> we laugh because we know people like that in our small groups. In fact, you pray for them to come today and they didn't show up. And the reason why people who are very insecure, they do this, is to test your love for them. You reach out to care and they just diss you. Since they don't seem to want your affection, most people, when they get this, what do they do? They withdraw their love. And then what does it do? It confirms their belief that you didn't care in the first place. And what happens? Insecurity perpetuates. While some people are mean, other people will do anything to gain your acceptance and love. They're like little puppies. They'll do anything. I'll roll on the floor. I'll sit. I'll jump. I'll go fetch that frisbee. Whatever it takes to get your love and affection. I'm talking about most of y'all in here, by the way. These people, they make sure they put their best behavior on display and they go out of their way to hide their weaknesses and failures out of fear of being rejected. It's very sad, but in churches that are legalistic or religious, this type of behavior abounds. It's everywhere. People will do anything, even when it's not authentic. They will do anything in order to fill their need for security, especially if they're starved of it. This is why troubled teens who receive no love in the home were often given to peer pressure at school. Whether they acknowledge it or not, each and every person has a need for security, the security of being loved and accepted, and many people will do anything to fill this need. So when a young girl doesn't find this at home, she will find it in a promiscuous relationship. A young teen will find it among his peers doing drugs. You know, a lot of people, they don't do drugs because like, oh yeah, drugs look so cool and drugs look so fun. They do drugs oftentimes because of the social setting they're in. 
All their, one, of, one of their good friends starts doing drugs, and they go, well, I want to do what my friend's doing. And my friend's threatening not to talk to me anymore. Or they're, they're, I feel like I'm going to have distance with my friend if I don't do, do drugs too. So even though they know, you know, you know, say no to drugs, they know all the different campaigns, they know how bad it is for you, they still do it because of their need for security. An urban adolescent may join a gang to fulfill their need for security. You know, we got brothers in here. You know, if you really hear um, different testimonies, let me, let, me, let me rag on some people right now. Let me rag on John Park. Okay, John Park is from Northern Virginia. Where are you right now, JP? Where are you, where are you at? John Park is turning red right now. That's him. <laughs> If you want to know where John Park is, he's right there. John, John if you, you mind if I just share a little snippet, a little snippet of your testimony? Is that okay? Uh, I don't care. It's going. Uh, <laughs> no, no. You know, he shared it with me very openly, and uh, he, he feels safe here, okay? Now, John, John grew up in Northern Virginia, all right? And it's not like John particularly grew up poor, like in the urban ghetto, and it's mostly like suburbs kinds of settings. You know, you go hang out at the mall. You steal some baseball bats at the mall. You know, that's, you, 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 you graffiti on your uh, school desk. Now, that's the extent of your, you know, of your thug life. <laughs> why did this guy who, you know, wasn't really living that hard of a life, why did he turn to a life of gang? Hanging out with gangs, carrying a switchblade, running into a gang fight where everyone has a switchblade and you're most likely going to get stabbed or, or, or sliced. And he runs in like a madman into these fights. Why, why did he do this? I'm telling you right now, it wasn't because John Park is like this bloodthirsty, violent person. <laughs> he grew up in the suburbs of Northern Virginia. It's because he had this need for security, need to feel secure in the love of his peers. And so when his life got really boring, like Marius talked about, he said, man, I need some excitement. I don't want to belong to these boring cats. I want to, I want to belong to these gangsters over here. <laughs> and John did a lot of bad things as a result. And he'll tell you. He'll tell you his story. He went to prison. It wasn't like, it was juvie, all right? It was, Juvenile prison. It wasn't like, you know, prison break prison. It's juvie prison. You want, ju- you want prison break prison, you go to talk to Pastor Caleb. I love you, Pastor Caleb. I love you. Young people, but also adults, do all kinds of things to fulfill their need for security. Church, we must have a clear understanding of how God wants to meet our need for security. We've got to have it clear in our minds how God has designed it. How God desires to meet that need. He does desire to meet that need, by the way. You know, as Christians, we trust the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross to cover our sins 
and to give us right standing before God, don't we? That's the gospel. Although we have no problem trusting the sufficiency of Christ's provision for our sin, oftentimes we struggle to trust the sufficiency of Christ's provision for our needs. Many Christians, they struggle to depend on the, on the, on the Lord for their every need. God, I trust you for my finances, but I can't trust you for my romance. My love life, I can't trust that to you, God. I don't know about that. And thus, they begin to look to specific persons to satisfy their personal needs. And that's when people hit trouble. Uh, One Christian psychologist studied depression. And he came up with a theory that implied that it is valid to depend on another person to meet your security needs. You see, people who struggle with depression, often they start off being dependent on others. They depend on others to meet their security needs, their needs for love. But when the needs are not met, they get hurt. And when that hurt doesn't go away, it turns to anger. But the person is afraid to express that anger in fear that they're going to lose the little bit of acceptance they, 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 they might remain. So what happens? They never express that anger. They keep it to themselves. They hide it. And when the anger doesn't go away and is redirected toward the self, this often results in depression. So this Christian psychologist who studied depression, he believed that the solution is to direct the anger outward in an acceptable manner rather than deal with it inwardly. The Bible verse, be angry and sin not, is used to support this solution. Sounds very good, right? Well, be careful how you answer. Dr. Larry Crabb, he says that he agrees with this observation because this is often the case with depression. But he emphatically disagrees with the solution. You see, anger expressed under biblical guidance uh, is important. It's important to express your anger, by the way. Before you can forgive someone, you got to fully express the anger that you should have felt when that thing originally happened. If you suppress that anger in the first place. If you do not allow yourself to see the injustice, the abuse... That was done to you. You can't really forgive that person. You don't really know what you're forgiving them of. You're like, oh, I think they did something bad to me. I just forgive them. I don't want to look at it. It takes courage. And and, in our healing deliverance ministry at our church, when we bring people through healing deliverance from different past traumas, what do we do? We have them recall the day when it first happened. To vividly describe even if they've never revisited that memory before, we have them revisit that memory. Why? Because we want them to courageously face and fully experience the emotions they should have experienced. Sadness, anger, whatever. To experience it fully, and then now you're ready to take steps to forgive. 
So Dr. Larry Crabb, he agrees with this observation, but he emphatically disagrees with the cure because although anger expressed under biblical guidance is important and healthy, Dr. Crabb thinks that this solution is missing the root problem. The problem is not the anger. The root of this problem is misplaced dependency. Listen, this is what Dr. Larry Crabb says. The person who is angry at another for not loving him is assuming that he needs that person's love in order to regard himself as worthwhile. The reason why it's so important and why it's so devastating and why it's so depressing is I must have your acceptance. I need your love, but I can't have it. So my life is now destroyed. My life has no meaning. It's misplaced dependency. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting the love of a family member. Or a friend. There's nothing wrong with that. But when that family and and you know, and when that family member even withdraws their love and affection, you know, you may feel real sadness, emotional suffering as a result. That's normal. This is what I'm describing right now is just all normal. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with desiring someone's love and affection. But we must never fall into believing that we need, that we must have someone's love to fulfill our need for security. You must never fall into that kind of belief, that kind of assumption. I can't live my life without my mama's love. Oh, my best friend. We've been best friends for 15 years. If I don't have this best friend's love and acceptance and affection, I can't live my life. I got to have it. If I don't have it, then my need for security is not going to be met. We must never fall into that subtle kind of thinking. You know, example could also be a romantic interest. This is how people who have a crush on someone who does not return the affection gets all crazy stalkerish. Normal, nice guys that turn into stalkers. What happened? Misplaced dependency is what happened. Good Christian boy prays, fasts, goes to church every week. And now he can't stop following you to the bus stop. Uh, this, is, this is for real. This is serious to some girls. I know there are girls that listen to our podcast that have, that have confessed to me. How they had to get legal proceedings involved to stop a stalker. A Christian friend, college roommate, college doormate, whatever. Stop them from stalking them. How, how do people get to that? It's because they feel like, I must have that person's love. I need to have it or I can't survive. And you know there's love songs all about that. I'm waiting for a love song to come on to me right now. What are you singing, David? Huh? Brian McKnight's song, Still? I don't know that one. Stop listening to it. It's messing with your head.
Yeah, Michael Bolton, right? Well, how's the song go? Oh, yeah. How? <laughs> oh. <laughs> hey, it's too late, right? It's too late for JP. There's no shame today. I let his testimony out. <laughs> no, no shame. Yeah, there's a Michael Bolton song whose lyrics go, tell me how am I supposed to live without you? You know, like all these love songs, it teaches us, it disciples us without you even knowing. We begin to think this is the standard of love and romance. And if I don't experience this, then this love and romance must not be real. I want to experience that kind of love. But you know what? It's twisted. You think it's romantic. It's twisted. And when, when somebody you don't like back loves you like that, you're going to realize how twisted it really is. <laughs> well, it's not twisted when a good-looking guy likes you like that. Right? No, it's still twisted. If we fall into this belief that we need, we must have someone's love in order to fulfill our need for security. If this belief is true, you are also believing that God is failing to meet your needs. You are believing that God is not faithful to his promises. Which, by the way, in Philippians 4.19, the Bible says, My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. God says, I'm going to meet all your needs. You trust me, I'll meet all your needs. But when you say, well, I need, I need the affection of Brian Inhek Kim. Is your last name? Yeah. I must have the affections of young Kim and Jensen Yap and Jisoo Choi. I got to have their love. Or I can't live. Um, when you're saying that, you're pretty much saying, God, uh, what you said, by the way, is probably false. Uh, I got to have it. God's like, no, trust me. I will meet your needs. They actually can't do it, by the way. I will do it. And you're telling God, no, no, I don't think you're faithful to your promises. I mean, this statement, my God will meet all your needs, it's either true or it's false. There's no middle, middle way. Because the Bible, God says through Apostle Paul, my God will meet all your needs. All means all. So it's either true or it's false. If you insist that you must have someone's acceptance to fulfill your need for security, you are also believing that a human being can nullify God's promise to provide for all your needs. Yeah, that good-looking guy, that good-looking girl, you are, in, you are implying to God that that good-looking guy just messed up God's ability to provide for your needs. That means that in the world that you live in, if people don't cooperate fully with God's plans, then your needs for security will never be met. That is a dark and depressing world, isn't it? Don't you, don't you see now why people get so depressed? But those things are not true. This is the kind of false belief system that people fall into when there is misplaced dependency. 
If these things were true, then the world is indeed a depressing place. Now, while some people fall into depression, other people fall into compromise. Immorality. Let me explain. Instead of trusting God to fulfill your need for security and love, some people, they go looking to get their needs met in whichever way they can. A married man wakes up one day and finds out that marriage is not what he expected. He thought that his wife was supposed to meet all his needs. His needs for love, his needs for companionship, his need for sex, his need for doing chores around the house. He thought his wife was supposed to meet all these needs. But after a few years, he has found his wife wanting. He has found that she doesn't quite meet these needs the way he expected. So he goes creeping around. And he finds a woman who seems to be able to meet the needs that his wife fails to provide. And because he insists that he has to have these needs met by a person, his misplaced dependency leads him into an adulterous affair. You know, no Christian married man wakes up one day and says, I want to have an adulterous affair. Most Christian men that are following the Bible, they don't wake up and say that. But deep inside the the root of their heart, there is a belief system. And if there is any misplaced dependency, and they're putting these unreasonable expectations on their wife, and they don't feel like their wife is fulfilling it, some people, they don't get depressed. They start going out and falling into compromise. They try to go and provide for that need themselves, their way. So to all the bachelors in the house, listen. To all my single ladies in the house, listen to this. If you get married to fulfill your need for security and love, or to fulfill your need for sex, your need for companionship, your need to have somebody around to help with the chores, your need need to have somebody cook for you meals, If you get married to fulfill your needs, you will be devastatingly disappointed. Guaranteed. I will bet all my savings on that. I'm saying amen too, you know. No, it's mutual though. It's mutual. You will be devastating, disappointed singles. I don't care how amazing that person is. She's so kind. She's so considerate. She's so compact. She's no love. She's so selfless. He's so mushy. saw. He's so well built. He's so kind. I don't care how amazing you think that person is. That person cannot bear the weight of your unreasonable expectations to meet all your needs. That's called misplaced dependency. And if you keep it up, you will be disillusioned and probably end up in divorce. 
You know, right now I have, I'm hearing about three people that are talking divorce. Recent marriages within a few years. Just one by one by one, people calling me, telling me they want to get divorced. And my heart just breaks. Because when I look at the process by which they entered that marriage, I, I could have told them, hey, uh, if you guys don't do something different, uh, you'll probably want a divorce within three years. I, could have, I, could, I don't even have to have prophetic gifts to, pro- to, to, to predict that. I don't care how mature of a Christian you are, I could predict that for you. If you don't have some kind of outside help, some kind of premarital counseling, some kind of wisdom imparted to you by people who actually know about marriage... Dissatisfaction with marriage is often rooted in misplaced dependency. You are putting unreasonable demands on your spouse that she or he cannot possibly fulfill. And you know what? I'll be open here and I'll confess that in the first years of my marriage, I had occasions when waves of unhappiness came over me. Now, overall, I was very happy with my marriage. But there will be these times where these waves of unhappiness will come. (gasps) Pastor Christian, you? (laughs) Yes, me. (laughs) And it was in those moments that I felt most vulnerable to attack. And especially in the areas of visual lust. So I share with Pastor Benjamin, my spiritual father. And I share with him to talk about visual lust. But most guys, they talk about when they get accountability, right? And when I shared that with him, he didn't talk nothing about sexual temptation or visual lust. When he prayed about it, he pretty much said, who are you depending on, Christian, to fulfill your needs? I said, wait a minute. I talked to you about visual lust, you know, clicking on the wrong links. Uh, what are you talking about, PB? He's like. Who are you depending on to fulfill all your needs? Because you know what? God can, God's the only one that can fulfill all your needs. He promised it. Not Aaron. And part of what's contributing to your struggle may be that you need to come back to a place where you are centered around the Lord. Trusting and depending on him to fulfill all your needs. I learned that if I am indeed trusting God to fulfill all my needs, then I must joyfully receive his provision for my needs. My needs of companionship, love, of even sex. I must not turn to visual lust on the internet. Because God has not given that as a provision to meet my sexual need. Nowhere in scripture does God says, when your wife is not quite meeting your sexual needs, then you are, you are to go onto the internet. Not too long. <laughs> but for 15 minutes, you are to indulge and get your sexual needs met. And that will prevent you from getting into an adulterous affair or some junk like that. Nowhere in scripture has God given us that provision. Because the moment I start turning toward provisions that God has not ordained, what I'm telling God is, God, you're doing a pretty bad job at fulfilling my needs. So you know what? I'm going to go fulfill them myself. 
This is the kind of thinking that leads pastors into adulterous affairs. You know, I, I, knew, a, I knew a pastor back in New York. And he was single at that time. And he told me that he genuinely believed that pornography and masturbation was God's provision for his sexual needs. Now, you might be like, heck no. But this was not just one pastor. I don't know how this belief spread. But a lot of young Christian men, they start telling me and articulating this belief. God has ordained pornography and masturbation. And that's God's provision for me in my single years to fulfill my sexual need. And so I don't think it's that bad. I have needs. I got to get them met. And this is the safest way without hurting anybody. This pastor was believing a false belief. Because one thing, it's not found anywhere in Scripture. And neither would any wise, mature man of God ever recommend that for anyone. God alone is well able to fulfill your every need. He alone can satisfy the deepest parts of your soul. He alone can satisfy. And God is very specific about how he will meet our need for sex. And he said, there's only one way and one way that I provided. And that's the covenant of marriage. That's it. Well, you know, when I married my husband, I wasn't a Christian. And within the last five years, now I'm a Christian, but my husband's still not a Christian. And my husband's just not meeting my needs. And so I met this Christian godly man at the church. And he has taken a liking onto me. I'm still young. I'm still 28. I'm still 31. I got my whole life ahead of me. Why should I waste my life with my original marriage partner, who I got married as a non-believer, so I did not discern the word of God for my life anyway. And so this marriage is not God's will. But I believe this handsome, godly, praying Christian man at my church, he must be God's will. In fact, we've been sleeping together. And we plan to run away together because everyone around us cannot seem to see the will of God like we do. You know, the funny thing is, this is a completely true story. True story all over America. Happens again and again to women and to men. You have Korean pastors. They run away with some deacon in the church, deaconess in the church. And they run away, and they usually run away for about six months. And then they always come back for some reason. And financially, I guess they can't really make it, so, you know, whatever reason. But they run away. A pastor, fully convinced that my first marriage was not God's will for me. So now this must be God's provision, because i got to get my needs met. And my wife ain't doing it. And this woman can do it. So God, although... You say you hate divorce. I don't think you really meant it for my customized situation. (laughs) Remember, I wasn't even a Christian when we first got married. 
So this, this is, no, the Bible says, this is what God's word says. What God has joined together, let man not separate. Once you're married, it's done. Only thing that can separate you is death. So if you want to start thinking along that line, you're welcome to. But that's the only legitimate way to get out of a marriage. Whether you were non-believers both, or only one of them was a non-believer, or you were a non-believer, that person was a Christian, and then you became a Christian and realized you don't really love them, it don't matter. Once you're married, God hates divorce. God wants you to work it out. There is no plan B. Why is it that so many young Christian married couples are getting divorced right now? People who are just going to church and people who are ministering in the church. Why? And I believe it all goes back to misplaced dependency. Brothers and sisters, God alone can fulfill your every need. You know, if you have misplaced dependency in your life, that makes you vulnerable to witchcraft. You fall in love with somebody that you really like. And you present that person to your parents. And then your parents say, Never over my dead body would you marry this person. What, what that, can you at least meet him? Mom, can you at least talk to him? And this is Korean, Korean parents, very typical. What college did he go to? Brown University. What? Like some, some Korean parents, they, they don't know. They need to diversify the good, good schools in America, right? But all they know is Harvard, MIT, Yale. You know, those are like the top three. If, you, if you're not a graduate from there, then, then they, they're not good enough for your daughter or husband or, or your son, right? And, and they reject you. <clears throat> what will you say when your parents reject you and you're the person that you love, that you hope to marry? Some people, they say, I must have my parents' love and support at any cost. What does that, that's mutual, depend, that's uh, misplaced dependency. They believe their parents have an ability to meet their needs in a way that no one else can. And without it, they can't live their life. So what happens? They get, they get vulnerable to all kinds of control, manipulation, witchcraft by their Korean parents. That's going to apply to a lot of different cultures. But as a Korean, I see it happen every single time. With the exception of like Hewan and Diddy. Right? Hewan and Diddy's love story is like the one exception. If you look at and you study the love stories of every married couple in this room, it was a story of rejection and going through a season of witchcraft where you had to resist the parents from controlling the young people that are involved. You know, there's a reason why the Bible says, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife. And the two will become one. You know that belief that when people, two people get married, it's two families getting married? Not in the Bible. I could understand the practicality of that, but it ain't in the Bible. If the in-laws ain't getting along, it, it don't make God cry. <laughs> like in, fact, in fact, God may be causing that. 
You know, he can, he can actually cause that strife. He can either cause it or he can allow it. He can allow Satan to just do it. If your parents don't support this potential marriage, does that mean that God has failed you because God is not turning your heart, the heart of your mom around? Does that mean that their rejection means that this person you're supposed to marry is not God's will for you now anymore? The scripture teaches us that in these moments, we got to learn how to trust God's faithfulness. Too many people have a shallow view of God. They believe that God is up in heaven and all he wants to do is bless us with comfortable things. Things that always go our way. He wants us always to be loved and accepted. But Jesus didn't say, blessed are you when you're loved and accepted by everybody. He said, blessed are you when you get persecuted. When you get insulted. When you start following God's will for your life and your parents say, what's wrong with you? Why are you moving to Australia and wasting your life? What are you doing in Korea when you have an Ivy League education? Jesus said, man, if your parents do that to you, you are blessed. But we have such, many people have such a shallow view of God. Our theology is so, it's so scratch and sniff. It's so shallow. You know? Is that you, God? That's, a, that's about as deep as most Christians are wanting to go through there today. And we got to understand that God is the God of sanctification. You, know, you want me to read some verses to you? Jesus said this, Luke 18, 29. I tell you the truth. Jesus said to them, no one has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus said, following my will may sometimes require that you experience rejection from those who are closest to you. That you may have to actually forsake them, even though you're not really forsaking them. But they'll accuse you of forsaking them. And you're going to have to live with it. You're going to have to get over it. You're going to have to cry your eyes out and then leave them to follow my kingdom. You know what else Jesus said? Jesus said, Matthew 10, 34. Look at this. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What? Jesus, what are you talking about? You're the prince of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. What are you talking about? Not peace, but a sword. And Jesus articulates verse 35, Matthew 10, 35. I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Am I shattering your little scratch and sniff theology right now? I hope I am. I hope I'm scratching that whole thing off right now. Because it has nothing to do with the God you serve in heaven. The God we serve in heaven is a God who will ordain certain things to sanctify you. Including the persecution, the slander, and the rejection of your closest family members and friends. He will ordain that. He'll do it. That's why you got to trust him. And find your security needs being met in him alone. I'm going to give you three practical ways that you can be centered on. On God to meet your need for security. Right? How do we overcome insecurity? How do we depend on God alone to meet our need for security? Three steps right here. One, two, three. Here we go. 
you're taking notes right here. Number one, Hebrews 13, 5. Believe that God will never leave you or forsake you. That's his promise. Hebrews 13, 5. Believe that God will never leave you nor forsake you. If you follow his will, people might leave you, people might forsake you, but God will always be with you to the very end of the age. In fact, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, the insults, the witchcraft, the rejection of your family, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? Will any of these separate us from the love of God? No, I'm convinced that nothing in all of creation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Believe, number one, that he will never leave you. Number two, Philippians 4.19. I already mentioned this verse. It's a central text for this message. Believe that God will meet all of your needs. Philippians 4.19. Believe that God will meet all of your needs. It ain't the cute girl sitting three rows ahead of you. It ain't that tall guy that just shared his testimony at this pulpit. Those are unreasonable expectations that they will never, ever be able to fill. Not even a fraction of it. Only God alone can meet all your needs. In fact, what Philippians 4.19 says, according to the glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Which means, when God meets your needs, he does it abundantly. You might say, God, can you just, just, just give me enough for me to feel loved? No, God says, no, I'm going to meet that need. That need for security, that security of being loved and accepted, oh, I'm going to meet that. Oh, I'm going to meet that. <laughs> but you got to trust me. You can't go your own way. You can't follow your own path. You got to follow my ordained paths for you. And it ain't that handsome guy. It's the short guy. <laughs> no, Lord! Just cry it out, cry it out, grieve, let it go, get over it. Get over it, and you will find yourself in the middle of a marriage that's exploding with joy. God's going to meet all your needs. He promised it, so you got to believe that he will meet all my needs. Even though right now I'm I'm experiencing rejection from my parents. Oh, this is just temporary. God's going to meet all my needs. But but you know what? He's the one who's going to do it, not my parents. So my parents' affections may come and go. But I know his will never come and go. He's going to meet it in a creative way that I can't see right now. I just got to wait. He's going to send three sisters into my life that I didn't know a year before. But they're going to really help me to feel the love of the Father. And then three years later, they're going to move on to Australia. And then I'm going to have to make new friends. Friends with people that I, I used to judge as not being able to speak English well. Friends that I used to look down upon because they came from a different culture. They came from uh, three cultures, three culture kids that have a weird sense of humor. <laughs> now, now they're your best friend. And God's actually ordained them at this season for you to feel the love of God through that relationship. 
so that's second. Believe that God will meet all your needs. Third is believe that God will turn all things for your good. Romans 8, 28. God will turn all things for your good. You got to believe that. If you don't believe that, you're not going to be secure in God alone to meet your need for security, to meet your need for love. If you don't believe that, he's going to turn it for good. Because, you see, your trust in the Lord is only going to last as far as your ability to see. And the moment you don't get to see what God is doing in the bigger picture, your trust begins to abandon the Lord. But if you really believe that God turns all things for good, even when things happen in your life that are terrible. You want to talk about something terrible? Look at the life of Job. Job lost everything. Rich man. Now, if you're poor and you lose everything, it ain't a big deal, right? But he was a rich, filthy rich man. Possessions, property, sheep, more sheep than New Zealand. I don't know. Job was a rich man, had a lot of children, lots of children. One woman, lots of children. And then in one turn of events, he lost it all. Almost like the same day. You know, all your, your children were having a party and the, the tel, tent, tent fell, stupid tent company, and all, the, all your children are dead. And then while that person delivered the news, somebody else comes. Oh, by the way, your ch- children were having another party and, under a tent, and that tent fell as well, and they're all dead right now. And you're like, stupid tent company. <laughs> no, Job was like, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? All my children are dead? Can you go verify? Are you sure they're my children? They're all gone? You know, Job's wife, we oftentimes look down on her. You know, Job's wife, you know, I got to commend her. Because her theology was quite good. Because the moment all these things finally, all the collective things happen all together, you know what she said? Why don't you curse God and die? Just be done with it. Her theology was quite good. You know why? Because guess who was responsible ultimately for every disaster that happened to Job's life? It wasn't just Satan. Satan was the means. But the mastermind was God. He allowed it to happen. He agreed to let it happen. If he didn't agree, none of it would have ever happened. None of it would have been able to prosper. But God allowed it to happen. So she said, man, you know what? You just need to curse God and die. Be done with it. And Job said, you foolish woman. What you talking about? (laughs) I came into this world naked. If I got to depart naked... That's what I'll do. But you know what? May the name of the Lord be praised. May his name be blessed. You know, he was, he was experiencing real trauma and grief. But one thing you will notice about Job is <clears throat> he did not have misplaced dependency. He knew that God would not leave him. He said, though my flesh be slayed. What's that verse? Like, Pastor John Newfield, though my flesh be slayed, yet with uh, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Right? What? What? That confession is of a man who believes that God has still not left him, even though everybody else is saying, "Uh, you probably did something wicked." Look, all his friends are like, "You can you can you reexamine your life? You did some. People don't experience this when they do nothing, when they are righteous." Job was like, man, leave me alone. I'm pretty sure I ain't do nothing. Job continued to believe that God did not leave him, even though it felt like everything was telling him, 
God has abandoned you. He continued to trust. And he also continued to trust. As long as I live, God's still going to meet my needs. I might, be, I might have plenty or I might have less, but he's still going to meet all my needs. And he, deep down, he believed that God would turn it all for good. And what did God do? He turned it all around for good. Our security must be in God alone. You know, when Jesus said, I come not to bring peace but a sword, turn a man against his father, daughter against his mother. When Jesus said that, you know what Jesus is really saying? You know what Jesus is really saying? He's not saying, I'm going to enjoy the day when I turn you against your mother and then I turn your brother against... He's not saying, I'm going to enjoy that day because I'm going to do it one day. He's not saying that. He's saying, you know what he's really saying? He's saying, put your security in me. Your security must be in me and me alone. People will come and go, but you must learn how to trust in my sovereignty because I will never leave you. I will meet all your needs and I will turn all things for your good. But will you trust me when your parents reject you, when they throw you out of the house? Will you trust me Will you still be thankful and give thanks? Will you rejoice in your tribulation, which is ultimately your sanctification? Will you rejoice in this entire process? Listen to this. The means of how God will meet your need for security may change. But the source is constant. Let me say that again. The means by which God will meet your need for security may change. But the source is constant. In one season, it may be your community group members. And a year later, it may be your small group. A year after that, you join Emmaus staff. It's your Emmaus staff family. Three years later, you get married. And God ordains and uses the means of your marriage to help you to experience the source of his love, that source of security to meet your need for security. But then you know what? One day, 35 years later, your spouse is gone. What will you do with your life? Or your spouse goes over to reach a native people that are unreached. And he gets speared to death. What will you do? If you understand that the means may change, but the source is constant, you will say with Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. People will come and go. Relationships may fail you, but the Lord is always faithful. His love never fails. Now, I like what uh, Maria said earlier when he was quoting Pastor Milhua. Loneliness is an invitation for intimacy. How beautiful is that? A lot of times for Christians, loneliness is an invitation for immorality. 
It's an invitation for depression. No, loneliness. Sometimes God makes you feel so lonely. And if your theology of God is God's always there to make you happy, you're like, God, why have you abandoned me? But if, God, if your theology of God is much deeper than that, you realize, oh, I wonder why I'm alone. I wonder why nobody wants to talk to me this week. I wonder why when I called, um, it, I, I, I got confirmation that I was not invited to that birthday party. My suspicions were all true. And now I'm just alone by myself in my room. Nobody to talk to. Nobody's cacaoing me back. You know, it's in those moments, God's like, are you looking at me? Will you recognize that I'm the only one that can meet all your needs? You are a person of great worth. You are significant. And in Christ, you have unshakable security of being fully loved, fully accepted. And the beautiful thing is, this is where our Christianity begins. Some people think this is the end of their Christian life. That they got to do good things to earn God's love, to gain his acceptance. But the beauty of the Jordan River baptism, where Jesus came up out of the water, that voice of the Father says, this is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. That voice is teaching us something. Your life begins with well pleased, and your life ends with well done. And that's how we ought to live our Christian lives. The moment you trust Christ, you have full love and acceptance from the God who will never leave you. From the God whose love you can never be separated from. From the God who will turn all things for your good. I want to take this time bow your heads and pray. And I want to ask the pastors to come forward again to the front. And at our different campuses, I want to ask all the pastors to come forward to the front. I'm going to make ourselves available to you for a few minutes just to pray with you. Because there are people in here. When I was sharing the different examples, when I was talking about the funny stories, you realize, man, that's me. That's my narrative always looking for love in the wrong places never quite feeling like I'm fully accepted dealing with all kinds of rejection and abandonment and if that's your story and you feel like that's you or you're in a relationship a friendship family relationship marriage where you feel like there is misplaced dependency This is unhealthy what I've been doing. And you want to get set free from that by putting and centering yourself on God's ability to fulfill your every need today. If you want to do that today and you feel like this message has been ministering to you, we just want to take a few minutes just to pray with you before we close today's service. Because this is important.
when the word of God is preached, the Holy Spirit desires to breathe upon that word and bring healing and freedom and life. You may be more of a work-oriented person and you're like, oh yeah, I understand that first message. My life has purpose. My life has significance. But you've had a very difficult time receiving the love of others and experiencing the love of God. And today, Christ invites you. Center yourself on me. Put all your hope and trust in me. So that even if something like what happened to Job happens to you, you can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. If that's you, I want you to just stand up.